Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be psychiatrist Dr. Cynthia Hunt. You know, this, this week's kind of a different format. Normally, we have a bit of an introduction, but today we are going to lead right into the interview. If you guys will recall from last week, we discussed kind of how we got to the place where we are with the opioid crisis. There was a lot of good intentions, but there's a lot of side effects to these medications. And the medical term for this is opioid use disorder. But really what we're talking about is uh, poor folks who frequently unintentionally became addicted and frequently misuse prescription and non-prescription opioids. And so I'm very excited to get to this interview. Oh, she is an expert. Uh, Dr. Cynthia Hunt, she's a board member of the Catholic Medical Association, but she first did training in medicine and pediatrics and then went back for even more psychiatry. So she's a psychiatrist now. Uh, she has an active practice in the Monterey Peninsula of California, where she's chief of uh, the Department of Psychiatry at a small hospital. She also is a faculty member at uh, St. Patrick's Archdiocese and Seminary in Menlo Park. Uh, importantly for listeners now, she is uh, in charge of the CMA Opioid Task Force. So she works with the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C. She has met with members of the CDC in Atlanta, with uh, people who work in the White House, as well as uh, represented it, um, uh, the Catholic Church for this part of the world at a recent international addiction meeting at the Vatican. And on top of all that, she has an exorcism and deliverance ministry in California. And better than that, she has a husband of 27 years and three children, she is living a full life. Welcome to Dr. Doctor, Cynthia Hunt. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure and privilege to be with you today. Well, I know you like to title these talks Hope and Healing because so much in the news deals with the challenges, the pain, the suffering. And I think to make this a little more personal, it would help if you could paint a picture of what one patient might look like suffering from opioid use disorder. Uh, yes, I would be happy to do that. And yes, it is a very sobering issue, but there is hope and there is healing. And that's part of why we are doing this work and trying to expand it from the Catholic perspective as well as spiritual perspective of, of Christians and communities. There's a lot of work being done, but there's still a lot of work to do. So an example of a patient is one whom I saw approximately a year ago. Part of my work is working in the emergency room setting. And in that setting, I was called to consult on a 19-year-old college student who has been struggling with opioids. I learned that he was injured, football injury, junior year of high school. He was given opiates to help with his pain. And it did help a little. But he found, for him, that it also helped his mood. So he continued to take them. The doctor who was prescribing them was becoming concerned and eventually stopped prescribing them, even though this patient was complaining of continued pain. I don't think this patient was lying about his pain. I think the opioids were covering some of it, but it was more the euphoric effect that he was responding to. And I do believe he was still in pain. And how do patients like that experience the euphoria? Can you describe what that means to the lay audience who may have never taken an opioid? It, that is an interesting question as well because it's not the same across patients. So some simply feel relief from pain and they never would think about taking the pain medication again. Others actually feel better, but too much better. And they may not recognize it at first. Their mood has improved. Their pain has improved. So they believe that they need to continue taking it to feel better. They don't recognize that there's other effects that are occurring at the time. So many of them also surreptitiously continue to find the opiates. So this young man 
had continued to try to find opiates, and he was able to buy them from others, and he had a grandfather who was terminally ill who had opiates, and he began to steal from his grandfather's source. And he knew where the grandfather uh, kept his medications. Now, the grandfather had been very careful with the use, and it was meant to be temporary for him, but he did have cancer pain. Which is one of the best legitimate uses for opioids for pain. Yes, theoretically. Ah, it sounds like there's more there, too. <laughs> there is, and, and there is legitimate. I want to really share at this point, there are definitely legitimate reasons to give opioids. And just a little aside here, part of the crisis has affected those who legitimately need their opioids. And at some point, maybe we can talk about that. So unintended consequences in the other direction. Yes, absolutely. And some of the doctors and, and pain um, specialists are truly running into this and finding that their patients who had been stable and not abusing opioids are now being cut off from their source of opioids, and they don't know what to do. You know, Dr. Hunt, there's... You, you had mentioned this student initially got this after an injury. One of the things that I was surprised to learn as I went through training and just experientially seeing, a lot of people who might read about this in the news have this envisionment of people stealing opioids or somehow using them for recreational purposes intentionally. But it seems like most people with opioid use disorder kind of fall into it. Would that be accurate? I believe that would be accurate, yes. So most fall into it. Some of it's experimentation. A, um, a peer will say, oh, go ahead and try this. Your headache will get better. Or they're already using some substances, like cannabis, and this falls into their hands, and it be becomes an open door to more and more illicit drug use. But having said that, yes, the majority of uh, people affected by the opioid crisis appear to be those who accidentally fell into it, like this student. Um, so this student continued to, to use, and then he found that the euphoric effect, we're gonna call it that, he didn't use that word, he said, I felt good. That effect then started to wane, and he realized that he needed more, and he was running out of sources in the street. And a peer, another peer, introduced him to heroin. So he's an intelligent young man. So he was able to finish high school and started college. But unfortunately, during that time, he became so addicted to heroin that he was coming into the emergency rooms with uh, severe dependency and withdrawal symptomatology, he actually had accidentally overdosed once, and fortunately there was someone around who had Narcan available. At the point that I saw him, and the reason, one of the reasons psychiatry was asked to evaluate him, he had become quite hopeless. He was quite sure he was going to drop, need to um, discontinue his college, move back home, and he was strongly considering suicide. Do you, do you find that there's a big overlap with other mental health and psychological conditions with opioid use disorder? Yes, that is definitely my experience. And also there's some data that shows that 30 to 50% at least of those with opioid use disorders and actually many addictions have a comorbid, we call it, a, a um, mental health issue that li sort of lives with the, the use disorder. So that makes them more likely to develop opioid use disorder. It does increase their vulnerability. The other thing that will increase their vulnerability is a family history of substance use disorders, including alcohol. And this young man did have alcoholism in his family. Fortunately, he didn't go in that direction, but he feels very disturbed now that because he has the understanding that he is addicted at this point, and, but he doesn't know his way, way out. Um, the family history is also strong for depression. Do, do you find when, when the mental health disorders are treated that it 
becomes easier to overcome the opioid use disorder? Or is that even like a prerequisite where if you ignore the, the mental health conditions, it's almost impossible to overcome opioid use disorder? So, so the difficulty is the recognition of the, the mental health issue. It is essential, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, that those who are opioid users who have difficulties with dependency be evaluated for any co-occurring mental health disorder. Many times it is thought that the addictive disorder stands on its own and that that may be causing their depression, which it can. There's great legitimacy to that. But if we miss a co-occurring major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder or anxiety disorder, then we are doing a disservice to the patient in their healing. So in my experience and those of others, if we treat both at the same time, it's called dual diagnosis. Dual diagnosis treatment is essential in these types of cases and very, very helpful. And I can share more about this gentleman, but basically, if we treat the co-occurring mental health disorder, it does make the opioid use disorder easier to treat. That's probably not a great word because none of the addictive issues are easy. But it makes, it helps the patient and the physician and the treatment team to be able to help that piece of their disorder. It still is an addiction. It still needs proper care, that part of the disorder. But by treating the underlying depression, the person is more motivated, the person may be sleeping better. The person may have a better perspective because, as you may know, in depression, for instance, the faculty is clouded uh, in terms of a hyper-focus on the negative, uh, a hyper-focus on the low mood and the hopelessness. It is part of depression. There are lots of studies that show that, that when depression is effectively treated, both the mood and the outlook improves. So the person who has almost tunnel vision in terms of the negativities of his or her life, that tunnel starts to improve with more light coming in. And we're gonna talk about more light, more hope, more healing. I think this scenario really sets up well the rest of the interview. And for regular listeners of Dr. Doctor, we're at the end of our first segment, which they know means our medical trivia question of the week. So this week, sticking with the topic of opioid use disorder, a little fact about the medical establishment in the U.S., there are 24 member boards of the American Board of Medical Specialties. In fact, you have three represented on this show. You've got Dr. Hunt in psychiatry, Andrew in family medicine, and me in dermatology. And then there are subspecialty boards. Well, as of 2014, there were 22 and a half million people in the U.S. who needed treatment for substance use disorder of alcohol or drugs other than nicotine. And only 12% of them received any form of inpatient, residential, or out-treatment, outpatient treatment, meaning there's a shortage of people to treat these, among other problems. So my question is, in what year did the American Board of Medical Specialties finally recognize a new subspecialty certification, that of addiction medicine? Addictions have been around, around for millennia, but when did the ABMS recognize that subspecialty? We'll be back with more fascinating conversation with Dr. Cynthia Hunt after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor coming to you from location at Mundelein Seminary in Illinois, just north of Chicago. And we are here with Dr. Cynthia Hunt talking about opioid use disorder, and kind of in follow-up from our uh, recording last week, I wanted to ask, what is special about America? What is the problem? Why do we have such a problem with opioids more than it seems other places in the world? Is it that we have an addictive culture? I mean, what, what is it about America individually that caused this? Thank you for that question. It's a, it has a complex answer. However, there does seem to be an addictive nature, first of all, in our humanity. Also biochemically, which we'll touch on later, particularly if there's family history. But unfortunately, our culture now, and this has been stated by many experts in different fields, that we are a culture that does not have patience. 
We are a culture that needs response now. And that can be anything from the food we want, maybe the alcohol we want, to simple things like staying in line at the grocery store or being in a traffic jam. If we think about that, the other piece of the culture, which is huge, has been the internet and cell phone technology. So what has happened, again, somewhat surreptitiously, I can share even personally with my own family because the increase in technology as our children were growing up rose so fast, it was difficult to catch up and really reflect on what was the best, what was moderate, their peers were getting cell phones at early ages, etc. We do our best as parents. We know more now than we did then in terms of addiction. These are called process addictions to texting, to telephone calls, although that's not so high anymore because people text, to emails, to social media, to the intensity of Twitter, for instance. And that type of addiction ha is not even allowing our children to sleep. Literally, they have to have their phones by their side. In my child and adolescent practice, parents are frequently so concerned about that. So having said that, the addictive culture has risen exponentially for many reasons. So are these addictions, for instance, to cell phones, to media, setting up to make it easier to get addicted to things like opioids? My professional opinion is yes. I don't know if there's any studies that show that correlation, and that is a very interesting correlation or possible correlation. I suspect there is the case. I don't know how one would form a study, and I'm willing to go back to the books and look at that. It, but in both cases, some of the same brain pathways Absolutely. are being used. Absolutely. Whether it's pornography, gambling, opioids, there are similarities in yes. what the brain's doing. Yes, and you probably discussed those at your last. Um, and And we've t discussed those, uh, Tom and Andrew. So the brain pathways, if they are already being affected by an addiction, yes, they would be more vulnerable. We would, we would assume in some way that they were going to be more vulnerable. So the opioids, they come into play and we know the trajectory of how that happened. And if the opioids help people feel better, even with anxiety, which they can do, there's a calm feeling with opioids. So maybe it's not just improvement in the overall mood. There's a calm feeling with the, with the opioids in our very anxious, hurried society. So addiction in our culture is high. Now why? That is a complex question as well. So yes, we have an addictive culture. So you've answered that incredibly well. I want to move on to another thing that's near and dear to your heart. And that is the media talks about the biological, even the psychological effects of this crisis. But what are the spiritual effects of this crisis with opioids? The spiritual effects of this crisis are profound. There's many levels and there's many factors involved. At the height of the crisis for a person, for instance with this young man, there's despair that has set in because this young man knows he wants to discontinue his opioid use, but he finds that he cannot and he's tried. He had already been in a 28-day program to try to help this. He was able to stay uh, clean for about a month, and then it started all over again. The temptation to use uh, became very strong. Is the temptation partly physical, or is it all mental-emotional? Combination. We frequently refer in psychiatry and in medicine to the biopsychosocial model because it's true. There's a biochemical component. There's a psychological component. In this case, for this gentleman, underlying depression. There is a uh, social, exactly, social component, which now is really affecting him because he's, he's failing college and he's needing to move back home. And this affects his self-esteem and there's a spiritual component. So this gentleman, the spiritual component was despair. He was raised Christian. He practiced his faith fully and even 
was able to practice his faith and attended church at college. But since the addiction has grown, and since his depression has increased, he's, becoming, he's beginning to have many doubts about God. <clears throat> Why would God allow this? Why is God not healing me? I'm praying every day. I want to die. I, I don't see, and, and I, I believe God would understand because this is too much suffering. That's incredible. It just highlights the importance of the spiritual aspect of this. And, you know, one of the things that I'm so proud to be involved with the CMA, and I thank you for your work, I think some of our listeners would, would be really impressed at the things that you've been able to do with your ministry, especially with the opioid crisis, looking at the spiritual aspect, being involved even on a national level. What, what is the path that you can share with patients for hope and healing for this crisis? I believe that if listeners can reflect on the model, biological, psychological, social, and spiritual, especially the spiritual, they will begin to feel more hope. Both the victims who are suffering with this addiction and their families this is not an easy course. There's no easy answer for why we suffer. However, for those of us who do have faith, to trust that the Lord is with us, that the Lord truly wants our healing, that for some mysterious reason, he's allowing this type of suffering to bring us closer to him. That may be a difficult place to be initially. This four-step model, the biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. Yes, yes. And the, this model biologically now, fortunately, for the opioid addiction, first of all, to understand it, it is not a moral failing. I think there's lots of stigma around that. It is definitely not a moral failing. There's a biochemical reason that people suffer with addiction. Especially when they're not starting this to try to get the high. They're starting it for legitimate reasons, or at least it's prescribed for a legitimate reason. Yes, but even if they start it to get a high, by the time they are quote-unquote hooked on it, right. it's very biochemical. It, no, it is biochemical. My point is that they didn't start out taking it for a, a, a moral an immoral reason. They started taking it for a moral reason. Right, the choice itself. Right. Correct. Right. I and, hear I understand what you're saying. And it doesn't affect people equally. Some people, That's as you right. identified, so some, they they can't help themselves but to right. fall into this. And other people would take it for legitimate or illegitimate reasons and never have the desire or the they would never, so to speak, fall into the opioid use disorder. Yes. So totally agree. And the biological aspect now there's lots of hope. There, there is treatment, both with Narcan, that will immediately reverse the effects of a lethal dose of an opioid, and also with medications that help many people to overcome the addiction gradually. Right, so this medication-assisted treatment, what do you want the audience to know about that? Are there useful things? There are useful medications. The medications that help patients and truly have been documented to save lives will help that patient stop the use of illicit opioids. Some of these medicines, a couple of these medicines, have small opioid receptor uh, pieces to them that help them with the withdrawal. So it's giving a little bit of the benefit. A tiny bit of the benefit, not the euphoric benefit, but the tiny bit of the benefit to ease the biochemistry that's going on in the brain. So they're less likely to have withdrawal symptoms. They're less likely to have withdrawal symptoms, and the craving can go down. Now, having said that, I want to quickly get to the psychological uh, piece, because abstinence-based treatment is still ideal. It is the goal of every human being to be free of any substances, if possible. There's lots of studies happening, there are lots of studies happening at this point to determine if a person starts one of the medications to help them with, with withdrawal, how long do they stay on it? 
And so there's a lot of um, studies helping with that to determine are there some people that may need to stay on long-term? Are there some people who really should go strictly immediately to the abstinence-based with a little help with withdrawal? Are there some people in between? So there's a lot of study going on, but that it, these medications are truly helpful in getting people away from the accidental or even purposeful overdoses that have happened in the United States. So one, one of your big messages of hoping is that there are treatments and they address several components of this disease That's right. from the, the biochemical aspect to the psychological and even the spiritual aspect. One of the things that has been troubling in the past is uh, the access to treatment, and I'd like to talk more about your work in improving that after our next break. We will be back with more Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor. And Dr. Hunt, after we, we went to our break, you had mentioned additional treatment options that you wanted to mention, such as uh, places where these folks can live for a period of time. Uh, yes, there are multiple treatment options. Again, with our biopsychosocial model, which includes spiritual, I would like to uh, share that in addition to medication, which may be indicated, then we also have psychological and spiritual social treatment centers. Some of these are residential centers that are faith-based. Some are not faith-based. When I was uh, blessed to be at the international meeting on addictions in Rome uh, six months ago, we learned of quite a few Catholic residential treatment centers. One of them is an organization called Sinacolo, founded in Italy, and we have a Sinacolo in Alabama, actually. And I believe Sinacolo comes from the English word Senecal, which was actually referring to the upper room you know, a Pentecost and that's, the Last Supper. That's correct. So the focus of these communities are to help persons who are struggling with addiction and possibly uh, comorbid mental health issues to live in community with schedules of prayer, work, sacraments, and the ability to obtain the treatment that will help them stay sober. And these usually take at least six months, if not to one or two years, to um, be able to experience full recovery for the So patients. is there a way here that the actions of the body actually informs the healing of the mind, the way that they're living this life of prayer and work? I, I remember hearing uh, something C.S. Lewis wrote, as the body is inclined, so the spirit, just like kneeling in prayer. So I'm wondering if this regular, healthy work of the body helps the mind to heal better. Absolutely. There are definite connections between our bodies and our minds. And we know that on the negative side, stress causes illness, etc. On the healing side and hopeful side is that the more we live in a healthy way, the more the body can heal in the synapses, which are the connections in the brain and in our bodies. And in fact, even if we look at studies with therapy, when persons receive therapy, say for an anxiety disorder like OCD, the SPECT scans show the change in the brain from therapy alone and not just medication. And praying the rosary has shown some effects, positive effects as well. So our personhood is truly biopsychosocial and spiritual. It is soul, body, and psyche. That is, that is amazing, and that's one of the things people ask me sometimes, what does it even mean to be a Catholic physician? But treating a patient holistically, looking at the spiritual and psychological components, especially things for opioid use disorder, it's almost essential. It is. You know, one piece of what we thought was bad news, in fact, up until last year in the literature, 2018, it said that only 10% of people with opioid use disorder had access to treatment but you have some good news on that front. I believe I have good news. I don't have a study behind me, but the work that I've been uh, privileged to 
be in with uh, Health and Human Services and with on the community level and diocesan level, it appears that left and right treatment centers are recognizing this crisis. Doctors are receiving extra training for this crisis, and patients are receiving more access. Part of the access issue is the decision of the patient to be willing to accept treatment and the resources that might be available at the time that the, the patient is willing to receive. So I think um, while the number is low, I suspect it's still low, what's happening is that the awareness is increasing. In fact, I can give you another example. In one of the clinics in which I work, there was someone in the parking lot. I was not there at the time. There was someone in the parking lot who suddenly slumped over, young person, 30s, suddenly slumped over in the parking lot. The other patients who were in the parking lot getting into their cars ran into this clinic, and the doctors, because they were very aware of the opioid crisis, grabbed Narcan, came out to the parking lot, and gave this patient Narcan, How was and it she revived intranasally. So they sprayed in the nostrils. That's right. They were ready to go. That saved a life. And the doctors who were involved with that recognized that that may not have been the first thing on their minds five years ago. So the awareness is increasing for families, communities, hospitals, physicians. And even with that awareness, people are at least being open to more treatment. And the the stigma also keeps people from seeking treatment. And I believe very gradually that's improving as well. Stigma by patients or stigma by those around the patients in the family or in the community? All of the above. All of the above. Mm -hmm. One of your favorite topics to discuss is the opposite of what you do in uh, your deliverance and exorcism ministry. And that's the good side of it, the Holy Spirit. And you have seen the Holy Spirit incredibly at work as you have been in the opioid use treatment world. Tell us about it. I'm happy to do so. And may I share yes, you may. respectfully of that course. actually the work in the deliverance and exorcism ministry, although somewhat of a different topic is, is a little bit involved here, not, not that people are possessed or that we, they need exorcisms, but being involved in that ministry brings hope and joy. I have seen miracles through that ministry. So it's not the opposite. Thanks be Just to God. So, yes, yeah. yes. Well, the focus is on the evil one <laughs> often, say. but of course the antidote is, is the, the Holy, Holy Spirit. One. That sounds yes. like we're going to have to have you back yes. for another show to talk yes, about and, that. And I would be happy to do so. Oh, I can't imagine our listeners would like that, or <laughs> would they? <laughs> anyway, so yes, the Holy Spirit is so active and truly the, is active. For instance, within Health and Human Services, and I don't mean that with any disrespect whatsoever, but I recently went to a conference held by them that we started each day with prayer. This is the division of faith and opportunity. And these are leaders that I was blessed to be invited to meet. So where do, you know, so the Holy Spirit has started this. I, I, I've been a psychiatrist for 22 years, and I've worked in the front lines with the opioid crisis, but, but have been seeing children, adolescents for many different reasons and many different health conditions. As I was working in the emergency room, it was very clear to me that there were lots of people, in fact, so many, we've talked about the percentages, who came in suicidal, and were dealing with opioids. And some of them had already attempted suicide with the opioids. This was regular, a regular occurrence. So as I was trying to work with those patients as much as possible and with my team, I became increasingly aware of this crisis. Had been aware in the background, but definitely aware that it was rising. About a year ago, the Catholic Medical Association received a call from personnel in the White House asking the Catholic Medical Association, the National Office, 
for Catholic input into the opioid crisis. And I believe the last time the CMA was asked for advice by the White House was back in the Kennedy administration. I believe that's the case. So that was Holy Spirit driven for sure. And then because I am involved in leadership and because leadership in the CMA knew I was a psychiatrist, they did reach out to me. Can you help us with this? I prayed about it and realized it was a call. Yes, I can help with this. I shared that I, it is part of my practice. I've seen it front lines and I'm happy to work with this, that I had a learning curve as well. It continues, by the way. The, the, the literature, the studies, the effects of the opioid crisis and how to help, we, we continue to learn and grow. So I was uh, invited to join other, um, uh, Dr. Peter Morrow, who was the pres president at that time, and Mario Dickerson, who's our executive director. And they said, do you have a couple of experts who could join you? And I invited our two emergency room physicians who are married and have worked significantly in the opioid crisis since they arrived at this Monterey Community Hospital eight years prior. Monterey used to be one of the highest opioid overdose death counties, and it is now one of the lowest. So they came along. So we all met with uh, White House personnel and then with the Health and Human Services Faith and Opportunity Division. They were wonderful, very wonderful. And they were excited about, about our work and, and, what, and about collaborating. They also wanted to be sure the spiritual aspects of care were heightened. And from that meeting a year ago, they uh, formed another meeting called Partners in Hope in November of this past year and invited 60 leaders, including myself, humbly speaking, of faith-based organizations who would be able to network and to help them. It was a wonderful meeting. And from that point, we networked quite a bit and initiation of the opioid task force of the CMA began. And we want to hear more about this story of the Holy Spirit's work. We'll be right back for our last segment after the break on Dr. Doctor, coming from Redeemer Radio Studios in Northeast Indiana. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, and everyone's been patiently awaiting the answer to the trivia question. Uh, probably they've been enthralled with Dr. Hunt, but nevertheless, here is the answer. The question basically is, when did the American Board of Medical Specialties recognize a new subspecialty called addiction medicine. I, I got kind of close because in the initial question you gave the hint, finally recognized. Yes, finally. So it means it was actually sometime this century, not last century, even though there were a lot of addictions. Yes, it actually wasn't until the year uh, 2015 in the month of October. And interestingly, a member of any of the 24 specialty boards can get the subspecialty of addiction medicine. I don't think there's any other subspecialty where that is allowed. Do you have any information on this, Cindy? Uh, yes, I've been excited to learn this as well. And in the field of psychiatry, there is a pathway uh, to obtain a, a addiction specialty as well. And I may do that. Pray for me in that discernment. Oh, definitely. And it's, it's something that's so, it really highlights how pervasive this is. You had mentioned a few more ways the Holy Spirit's been working off the air. Could you share those with our listeners? Uh, yes. So God is so good. Uh, even though there is a lot of evil in the world, not evil people, evil. And uh, the evil one finds his ways through a lot of avenues. The Holy Spirit is strong and well. We see this in many aspects of care of the opioid crisis patients, those who are afflicted this way. But we also understand that many are suffering, and we understand that there have been losses. And I'd just like to take a moment of silence to, to reflect on the losses that families have experienced from this opioid crisis. If we can just reflect in prayer for a moment for these families. There is hope. 
and I understand for these families, they've suffered a tragedy. Because we, as faith-based people, believe in eternal life and in the mercy of God, we know that there is hope. Having said that, I would like to share a little bit more about the Holy Spirit in my particular work. So part of it is in meeting these families and praying with them and hearing what they're going through. And the other piece is that the national work has continued. So the Catholic Medical Association being invited by this administration is so pleased with Health and Human Services and the, this administration, honestly, for all the work they are doing and for their support of the spiritual-based treatment and spiritual integration of treatment into this crisis. The Holy Spirit led me to the international meeting, which was beautiful, with further networking, and we now have a very active opioid task force made of professionals from across the specialties, clergy, and in various dioceses. Yeah, you've mentioned clergy. What, what is the role of the church in this crisis? So the role of the church is to truly be there for these people, one-on-one, -on -one, parish by parish, offer hope and healing. And what is the best way for the church to be there? We are a church of community. We have the communion of saints. So through this communion of saints, we can ask for intercession from all the saints, those who have walked the walk and are in heaven. And by the way, there are some saints who struggled with addiction. I don't know if many people know. So there are saints. Tell us, tell us, please. <laughs> okay. Many may not realize St. Monica struggled with alcohol use disorder. St. Augustine's mother. Yes, it was brief, but she is sometimes... Uh, she sometimes can intercede and, and has been uh, called a patroness of those who struggle with alcohol. That's an example. There are many. And uh, because of time, we, we won't explore more, but you can even Google. Now, this is a positive about the Internet. You can Google that, and you will come up with more saints who struggled with addiction and are in heaven. I love St. Monica for, for her role in bringing St. Augustine back to the church. What a role model, but especially now with addiction, it's just another reason to love St. Monica. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the communion of saints, including community within our parishes and families, and not to allow people to be isolated. It's okay to even talk about this, maybe from the pulpit, to talk about the hope that there is in trust in God, in in seeking treatment, in not allowing stigma to keep people from treatment. So our hope with this task force is to identify what's already working. There are many bishops and many dioceses who are already doing great work, many priests already doing great work, many communities like our small hospital doing great work. Our hope is to integrate all of that and then to strengthen the spiritual perspective from the Catholic perspective as well as a Christian perspective and faith-based perspective. I think one thing, if I had to summarize our conversation today, hope would be the one word. Absolutely. In our listeners, people who have family members struggling with this, in our message of hope to them, what advice would you give them or resources you would suggest that they look into in caring for their family and loved ones suffering with opioid use disorder? Thank you for that question. I would definitely want them to think about the model that I've that I've talked about, the biopsychosocial spiritual model. Highlight the spiritual whenever possible. That, this can include the AA, NA meetings, if the, if the patient is willing to go, if the person afflicted is willing to go. And if someone is not faith-based right now, the concept of higher power does work. Um, hopefully that person can eventually come to a faith in, in God. The biochemical we talked about, please be aware there are treatments. Talk to the primary care doctor of the patient. You, as a family member, can give information to the person's doctor. They cannot share with you without consent, but I want to remind patients, uh, family members, that they can 
do that. That's a great point. And should that be the normal entry into the system if you have a family member that's willing to seek care for a possible opioid use disorder, the primary care physician? Yes. Yes. Even urgent care or emergency room if necessary. There, there are many ways to enter the system and be persistent, I would say, and prayerful in getting your loved one there. Sounds like St. Monica again. <laughs> yes, yes. Pray for them and also be as supportive as you can. Now, this can be very tricky as we talk about tough love, and that can be another whole conversation. These, this is a very difficult situation for families. But having said that, being as supportive as you, as supportive as you can psychologically and spiritually it may be that they may need to be allowed to be homeless. We see a lot of those Allowed patients. to be homeless. Yes. That is a, is a very difficult situation. And honestly, it is not anywhere near top of the list. Some patients, some afflicted people need to hit rock bottom. We've heard that. But... Up until then, and even then, keep the contact with them. Allow uh, lots of contact. Um, have Narcan available. So even in the home, are there families that should have it available? Yes, yes. And by the way, so this patient um, did, did receive help for his depression, was more motivated for his treatment. Narcan was at home. He had one more incident of an accidental overdose. Something to keep in mind, by the way, if, if a person has been abstinent from opioids and then goes back, they frequently don't realize they cannot tolerate the dose they had before. And this is the, one of the reasons for our accidental overdoses, including the fact that fentanyl now is, you know, these, the, these opioids and other drugs are laced with fentanyl, which is deadly. So have, again, back to our biopsychosocial spiritual model, pray. Please do not let stigma keep you or the, the patient from receiving help. Don't give up. Um, obtain counseling. Go to the primary care physician, urgent care, whatever you need. Um, be open to the possibility of residential treatment, biological, biochemical um, help, and be a St. Monica. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, there's, there's no rapid solution to this crisis. No, this takes time. And this patient, it did take time, but approximately one year later, he is now uh, clean and sober and back to college. Now, I, I do need to say this as a physician. The identity of this patient has been totally masked. Um, the details are totally... Um, uh, different from the reality. So it, this patient is unidentifiable, unidentifiable. I do need to say that as a doctor. But what a, what a blessing with the turnaround of, of that patient you referenced. So you want to have hope, you want to have Narcan, you want to get people in the system and keep praying and loving them, um, hopefully to health. What, what do you th what's the biggest changes you've seen in the last five years with regard to where we were with the opioid use epidemic to where we are now? There are many changes. One is, the top one is awareness. I think it's been excellent that President Trump and his administration and the FDA and all those involved uh, for, through the government have made this a priority issue. The second thing is increasing treatment models including MAT, but also highlighting abstinence-based treatments, AA, NA, the fact that Narcan is more readily available, the fact that uh, many physicians now are able to be aware and prescribe the appropriate medications when, when it's deemed necessary. Um, more treatment centers have uh, come about, uh, and spiritually, um, the need and the response spiritually with many organizations has increased. When, when I met with the national leaders, it's impressive the work that many of our colleagues across the churches are working and doing. Cindy, is there any resource online you would refer our listeners to? Does HHS have good information on this? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, HHS definitely has good information. If you look up under S-A-M, 
SHA, SAMHSA, you will find lots of information, including handouts, information for families, information for patients. That is an excellent resource, and that, that is uh, increasing in terms of the amount of information available. And then at some point, hopefully in the near future, we will also have uh, uh, resources on the Catholic Medical Association website. Cynthia, you have been a gem. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your spirit. And thank you to all our listeners for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Brought to you today from the grounds of St. Mary University and Seminary, Mundelein, Illinois and on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the news of good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen to past episodes on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing with Brendan Radigan what second year of medical school looks like. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show. This is Dr. Tom McGovern inviting you to listen to my friends, Dr. Mike Parker and Dr. Paul Brayton, who will appear live on EWTN television on Wednesday, July 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. They will discuss how the Catholic Medical Association forms and supports physicians to live and promote the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. Physicians who have your best interests at heart. Why not invite your medical student or physician friends to watch with you?